You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Everyone and welcome to One Hour Design. Today we are um, very pleased to have as our guest Beverly Watts Davis. Beverly is a senior advisor on substance abuse for the Office of the Administrator of Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, also known as SAMHSA. Um, Beverly has served in a variety of um, pro capacity over the years. She was the executive director of the San Antonio Fighting Back and the senior vice president with the United Way of San Antonio in Bexar County. Um, she also served as the director for the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, which is also called CSAP. Um, Beverly, could we begin just by uh, you telling our listeners what SAMHSA is and what it does? Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. SAMHSA is, it really stands for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and we're an agency of the federal government, and our whole mission is about a life in the community for everyone. And I, and I do love that vision because what it really speaks to is not about how many numbers can we count here or there, but it really what are the kind of full services that we can do to truly have people have a life in the community. How do we help them achieve not access treatment, but also achieve a life in recovery? And our vision is based on the fact that we are going to be addressing people of all ages, you know, with or at risk for mental health and substance use disorders. And so that's overall, that's our whole, what we are all about is addressing substance abuse and mental health disorders. And what we're going to talk about today is um, two very important uh, substance abuse and mental health uh, issues, and one is related to HIV, which we'll talk about um, in our later segment. But um, I'd like to begin by talking about um, something that I think is, is vitally important, and that is um, our National Guard and the new initiative that uh, SAMHSA is doing on prevention, treatment, and outreach um, for folks that are in the National Guard. And um, I guess more than ever, our country is dependent on our volunteer citizen soldiers, and um, I guess they get different benefits than, than people who are in the direct Army. Is that right? Most people don't actually know that because our National Guard and our reservists, right now they're, they're the majority of our force that is over um, in the Iraqi theater, you know, actually at war. And when they come back home, because these are like citizen soldiers, you know, when, when we're at home, if we have a fire, a flood or whatever, we look up and there we will see our National Guard who is helping policemen or firemen or whatever the national emergency is, if it's a national, a natural disaster, they're there. And so we see them and they really are like citizen soldiers. And then when they actually go to war, they are actually, they're, while they're on duty, they're treated the same way as, as any other military member. The, the issue that we are addressing comes in when our guard and a reservist come home because what ends up happening is once that they have come back home, they have a very, they have a shorter period of time for receiving services. And what we're really, what we're seeing with all of these, uh, with the number of reservists and the number of National Guards as they come back home, is what we're seeing is obviously uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and then later on substance abuse. And what we're trying to, by the time that they're, that people realize what's going on with them, because when they get home, they just want to get home. 
when they hit stateside, they want to, you know, touch land and they want to get home. And so they're not thinking about being assessed for these things. So these things may show up anywhere from two to seven, eight, nine months later. And at that point, um, they no longer have any benefits to get any help for any of these substance use or mental health disorders. And that's, what, that's why we're really getting involved, because we recognize that we are so lucky. We are able to sit in our offices and do what we do in communities and help people while these folks go over and fight for us. And when they come back home, um, we're saying to them, gee, if you don't manifest, if you, if you don't look sick in 90 days, then unfortunately you may not be able to receive services. And I want to just say, you know, the, we, we have a large institution in the Veterans Administration, but the Veterans, the Veterans Administration is for that. It is for active duty veterans and for those who have retired because they put in all of their, their actual time in to be of retirement age. But we have to remember the Guard are citizen soldiers. They spend the majority of their life and their time in our communities helping us with any number of issues. And so when they go over, they are not, con although they are considered the military, when they come back home, they have a much shorter time to be able to hurry up and get benefits, or, or unfortunately, those benefits will not be available to them later on. Um, if somebody's a citizen soldier and they're over in Afghanistan or Iraq and they come home, will their private health care pay for, like, PTSD or uh, substance abuse or addiction that can be traced back to their time in the Guard? Well, first of all, you said, well, their private health care. There's an assumption do if they right. have health care right um that's number one and which and you you have to remember with with the especially with the younger soldiers i mean these are eighteen nineteen you know these are young men and women, and they're not thinking you know when you get when you get forty forty ish you know, you begin to start thinking about things in your life. You, you're always making sure you have health insurance, but you know at, at age eighteen nineteen twenty twenty one they're not thinking about that. And many of them do not have that health insurance, and so what they what they have to do is begin to find these services in their community. And what we want to be able to do is to reduce the stigma. When these young people come home, we want we want to be able to hand them a voucher and say, "Get the help that you need." And what's so very keen about what we are doing, it's not just about getting um, substance abuse and mental health treatment because we understand that, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm defining treatment very narrowly here. I'm talking about the medical intervention. But it's really, really, really important for us to take a look at what we're calling, you know, what we call recovery support services. It's all those services that we provide, that, that we provide to people that really help them achieve a life in recovery. It's the crisis counseling. It's the stuff. It's the services for the family because in all of this, that's one of the key elements that's really been left out is the services for the family, and being able to make sure that if that the light bill isn't, you know, if they're having trouble getting their light bill paid, that they can be able to get help with that. And we know that these services exist in communities all over. Many of them are funded through United Ways. And what we want to be able to make sure is that we, when our soldiers come home, that we take care of them as much as they have taken care of us. How do people in the Guard learn about this program? Well, we are so very blessed to have good leadership over there at the Guard. We have a Colonel Johnny Boatman. He has a wonderful team of people uh, who, we, you know, who really has been the work group and pulled this whole team off. And one of our members here at SAMHSA, one of our SAMHSA contractors, Nazelki Janeo, um, we, we have Stephanie Weaver who's out in California, California, Janet, Angela, all of them who have really um, – stepped up. Janet's out in Connecticut. And what, what they've stepped up to really put this together and what this, they've developed this program called the Prevention, Treatment, and Outreach Program. And what they have done is they have trained um, 
over 14 states now, and there's going to be actually there were 12 states, and they're going to be training another 14 to actually do this for each other. And what they're really training people on is really oh, is what we would call a peer-to-peer training, where, where you've got peers as, as these soldiers are coming back home, you've got people who have been there, who have experienced this, who can help them, you know, take take a moment and figure out what they need to be doing. They know, those. Uh, one soldier knows that the other soldier, they want to get home. That says, you know, listen, when you get home and you start experiencing this or this or this, give me a call immediately so we can try, try to see what we can do to get you help. Or as they're, as they're coming stateside, once they get here, to be able to, to work with them, to get a full assessment so that we can try to get them help immediately. But again, this is really about Soldiers helping soldiers, and that's why I really do love it. It's like guard to guard, reservist to reservist, soldier to soldier, where they where they can not only where they not only understand the culture of the guard and the whole idea of what happens you know within the whole culture of the military, but also work with these folks in terms of just the whole military culture. Because as as out in the out in the other world, the non-military world, you know there we there may be a greater tolerance level for. Um, drug use. If you if you get if you get caught smoking or drinking on the job, you may actually get a warning. Well, for the guard, you know, there's oftentimes zero po- tolerance in some of the actual branches of service, so they don't get another shot. And so, what we want to be able to do again, um, and I just have to say thanks to the National Guard because what they recognize is they spend approximately sixty thousand dollars training these guys and making sure that they are combat ready. We don't want to lose this very valuable investment because of the stress and some of the substance use and mental health disorders that they may experience as a result of war. Um, you know, given any other situations, none of this would be happening, and that's why we are duty-bound. We are truly duty-bound to make sure that we can get these services to these young, to these young men and women who so greatly deserve it. Um, I've, I've got like a million questions for you, but one of the things that comes to mind when you're talking about the culture of the Guard, isn't there all, is part of the culture um, that, that supports people getting help, or is part of the culture to just kind of keep it inside? You know, think about Panton slapping somebody across the side's face and saying, you know, go back out there. I mean, what is the culture within the guard in terms of accessing help? Well, as I said, I, uh, this is really a, a an outgrowth of the leadership that they now have. That it really. It's, it's a valuing of that guard, and I'm really pleased to see that because my father was military, and I will tell you, um, maybe during his day, um, if someone had a problem, you know, you were facing discharge. Mm-hmm. But I'm really pleased to say that there is a recognition from the leadership of the guard that there's a great investment in this soldier, and this soldier has, in, has also greatly invested in the safety of this country. And so with this whole, this whole prevention treatment outreach program is about that. It is about recognizing the value and reinvesting in helping um, these guardsmen be healthy, be able to address their issues, be able to get treatment, and to be able to get the recovery support services that are going to, to allow them to return to a full and productive life. And, and, and I'm really pleased to say um, that the Guard, and this is not saying that they're soft or anything, but what I consider it is they're strong enough to do the right thing by their now, soldiers. With the peer-to-peer training, is that part of the prevention part of the, um, of the initiative where, where, where uh, vet- veterans or uh, guardsmen are trained to uh, outreach other guardsmen? Is that part of the prevention, or is there another component to the prevention? Well, that, well, that is, well, again, it's, it is a prevention treatment 
and outreach. And the prevention piece of that, yes, that is one of our, actually that whole program was modeled after a model program. Um, it, it was modeled after a model workforce called Treatment Readiness. Um, and it was a workforce readiness program that they modeled this after so that it, when we adapted it to the guard. But what's really key is, is the, the recognizing of it and getting help is obviously focusing on both the prevention piece, but helping to train guards members to help each other. But let's understand what that help each other means. It means that you've got guard members who recognize and know where resources are in the community. Because, again, and this is so true for so many people in communities, if they have a problem, they don't have the slightest idea. Okay, I've got an issue. Okay, now you've put 20, 10, 50 organizations in front of me. I have no idea which one's for me. I have no idea if I should be going to this or that. Um, and so what it does do is it helps it makes sure that you have a guard member who is going to be taking responsibility for helping this person, A, get a proper assessment. Um, we will be right back with uh, Beverly to talk more about the National Guard Prevention Treatment and Outreach Initiative that SAMHSA is sponsoring. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. I'm Mary Woods, uh, and we are here talking today with Beverly Watts-Davis, who is the Senior Advisor on Substance 
abuse to the Office of the Administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, also known as SAMHSA. Uh, we were talking about um, the National Guard and the new initiative that SAMHSA has for the prevention, treatment, and outreach uh, for the National Guard's folks coming home. And we were talking a little bit about PTSD and um, the peer-to-peer training. What would be some symptoms that somebody might exhibit after they come home that uh, might be red flags that something more is going on, Beverly? Well, you know, thank you for asking that because a a lot of this is going to be acute stress reaction disorders and a lot of depression. A traumatic brain injury manifests itself in a number of ways. Obviously, when you've got head injuries, you're looking at headaches and, you know, just bottom line, not feeling, not being able to focus. It's just the overall functionality of their losing shortness of a temper, tension. And one of the things we just have to recognize, when these soldiers come back home, you know, their family unit, the dynamics of their family has changed. I mean, they've been away. Uh, if they are married, the wife, if they're married, if they're married and have children, the wife has taken over, you know, children are relating differently. So there's any number of adjustments. You know, there's adjustment reactions, and people respond to this in any number of ways. And, what, and like I said, one of the key things is a lot of that is, de- is depression and just making sure that you, you know, just feeling just not good and, and constantly beginning to start thinking suicidal thoughts. And most people, as we said, they constantly believe they're just going to suck it up and keep going on. And we really encourage people to do that because what they, what they do is they turn to alcohol. They begin to start medicating out. They, if they're, we've seen a lot of, you know, abusive legal drugs. And so post-traumatic stress disorder is really the most adverse of these, uh, the psychological effects of combat service. And it can, But, you know, it's also the ones that we really have to make sure of that we are assessing when they come when they get back home. And like I said, you know, what's, these are the kinds of things that we are teaching that wonderful work group. And I just want to really emphasize and say thanks to, to that work group. I mean, we have Skip Riverman, who's out in Oregon, and, and Angela Dahlroppel, who I, I just love her last name because she's out in Oregon. Janet Richards, who, who I mentioned earlier, who's, I said she was from Connecticut, but she's in New Hampshire. And you've got these folks. Um, Stephanie Weaver, all of these people who have dedicated their time. Our staff here, Ms. Um, Janeiro, who have given days, nights, weekends, weeks to really putting this together, and more importantly, that they have tested this whole program with over hundreds of guards members to be able to, you know, to make sure that they were adapting it in ways that was really going to work. What What would the treatment? Um, can you talk? a little bit about the treatment for um, that, that's offered through this initiative? Yes. Well, one of the key things, is, as we said, I mean, within the if, – if soldiers are coming back and they're treated by the VA, they're going to be receive all types of medical care. But what we really want to emphasize, and this is why SAMHSA is involved, is that the treatment and the assistance is as – there's so much opportunity for that service as there are services in a community. And that's one of the key things we wanted to emphasize is that this is really about connecting to the resources that are there and us providing what our goal is in this is to really provide a voucher that's going to allow us to be able to access those services. We have a voucher program at SAMHSA called Access to Recovery. And in that, in, in that particular grant, we are looking at being able to use that funding that has gone to some of those to, to many of those states, so that we can use that funding that can actually help again these soldiers access both substance abuse and mental health services, but and for sure recovery support services. And I cannot emphasize that enough. 
It's, you know, about really focusing in on those recovery support services. And it's all those services that allow us, that help us, um, quite frankly, you know, do well and be able to address those triggers so that we are not, you know, unfor- so that we don't allow those triggers to take us back um, to the abuse of alcohol or other illegal drugs. Right. I know that um, in previous wars, the, the incidence of domestic violence increased with, with people coming home. Certainly the rate of alcoholism and drug drug addiction increased with, with people coming home. And um, I think, I, I don't know how much time there is to prepare somebody to come home. If, you know, if you're on the streets of Afghanistan today and two days from now you're on a flight home, how much time can anybody it seems a little unrealistic to think that people are just going to transition overnight. Thank you for saying that because you're exactly right. I mean, those are the duh moments. Of course, it is. They're not because people don't get to a certain point overnight. I mean, you have to remember. I just was talking to a mother of a soldier um, this yesterday, and as you know, she was she was sharing with some of the experience of her son. And you know, they go from a day um, of guarding convoys up and down this strip that is highly volatile, knowing at any moment they could be blown up, to coming back, you know, living with gunshots over the head, to having some quiet moments, but always having to sleep with one eye open. I mean, you never fully rest. You never fully, you know, just unwind. You can't afford to. And you're always looking out for your best friend. And I was so amazed. Um, when many, when, when many I've, just, I've talked, being from San Antonio, I've certainly been around a lot of, Military members and many people, as I've heard so many of these young men and women say, when they when they say they're going back, they're not going back because they're just you know super. Well, they are super brave, but that's not the reason why they're going back or they're trying to prove something. It's they're going back for their friends. I mean, the the, the families there that they make, the friendships they make, are so strong. And then to actually think how quickly those young people um, have to bond, and then to lose. And then at that moment, you don't you don't have enough time to grieve. You can't afford to grieve because you've got to get out of there. You've got to look for safety. You've got to protect the other guy to your right or to your left. I mean, those are all the kinds of things they don't even have time to grieve. You know, when the, one of their friends who 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 were killed, and that is that, that totally. When you think about that in life, as we are sitting in our comfortable chairs in our offices, et cetera, none of us are asked to do that on on any in any way, shape, form, or basis. Right. I can't even imagine it. I and, imagine. and I want, especially for our citizen soldiers who have to come back and earn a living. You know, um, the professional army, if you will, if they come home, they have a base to come to. They, I mean, the army or the navy or the air force is their job, so they come back and their job. There's a transition, but I can't imagine what it's like to go from being on the line in in Iraq to coming back and. Um, you know, being a program analyst or a nurse in uh, in the community, and and that is exactly why we have said it is so very important um, for us to honor and do right by these guys, by these men and women. It's we should be doing right by them. I mean, because for what they have to endure, we should be doing right by them. Oh, without a doubt. Now, in how does the uh, this initiative work in terms of um, like if you, like I'm in New Hampshire, it's a rural state where there aren't a lot of services. So, for example, the guardsman in New Hampshire that that lives you know uh, you know 40 miles from anything, how would they how would this program help them? 
Well, this is what, again, because you do have, an, and, and, and they're lucky because actually in New Hampshire, as I said, they, they've got they've got the leadership of Janet Richards out there, and, and, and because she is there, she, this is almost, she's like, you know, a true a one-woman uh, Mother Teresa squad, you know, just because what she's going to do is make sure that that happens. But, the, but overall, that's why we are training. It is really training of trainers because what we want to be able to do is to make sure that in, no matter where you are, there are going to be resources in your community that, for you to access. Okay, I mean, whether, whether you're in rural, there's going to be a local clinic, local hospital, et cetera. What we are really trying to do is to expand use of those local resources and then to help pay the folks who are on the local level. That's why the vouchers are so very important, so that a guardsman or a reservist can get a voucher and go to any of the resources that are in their community. Because part of the problem that we've been trying to address is that what we don't want is for a guard to be to have to drive three and four and five and six and seven hundred miles to go get help. Now this is on top of him being stressed out, having to deal with any other, you know, possibly dealing with some some true chaos or crisis in the home, and he's now got to drive six, four, five, six, seven hours to go get some help. That's just ridiculous, and especially when there are services that are local there that can help them. And see, with the Access to Recovery program. Within the states that got this, that got this money. I mean, we we have three-year grants that were awarded to the states of Arizona, to California, Colorado, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Missouri, New Mexico, Ohio, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wisconsin. And then within the Native American, within truly uh, the tribal nation, we've had five other tribes. Some, one is in the California Rural Health Board. One organization is, is in Alaska. It's the Alaskan South Central Foundation. You have the Intertribal Council of Michigan, the Montana-Wyoming Tribal Leaders Council, the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and the, and, the, and, the, and the District of Columbia. All of these folks are receiving these awards. And, again, all of these states have the ability to set up a voucher program that would allow a guards member to get a, a voucher at any number, any number of places throughout the state and be able to get this voucher and use it for the services that they need. That's what we are pushing. And in fact, we hope that the military will see fit to work with our infrastructure, to work with the infrastructure that SAMHSA already has in place, to expand on it so that we can begin to increase the number of vouchers that are available both to people who are not military, but especially to those who are military, to get the services in the states so that they don't have to travel all of these hours and hours and hours of miles to get help. Now, um, how would someone go about, if, if there's a guardsman listening or a family member listening, how would they go about finding out more information about uh, this initiative? Well, is there first a website off, or? I'm sorry, dear? Is there a website or someplace they could go to to find out more information? Certainly look at the certainly look at the National Guard website. Go to the National Guard website because you will find information on the uh, prevention treatment uh, outreach program. But also too, um, you can also visit when you when you at SAMHSA we do have any numbers of resources. In fact, each one of our these guard it, 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 these place, these people are being trained with guards. These are the guard units. We have put together a treatment locator. So if you really do need help and you go in and get help, they can click on your state, click where you are, and it will give you all of the treatment providers that are within your area. Um, but in addition to that, again, speak what, as, as, we are, as Colonel Boltman is rolling all of this out, what we are really focusing in on is having this capacity in all the guard units. Um, is, 
As we go to break, it's just really important for everybody out there to understand that our National Guard are citizen soldiers, and we need to do everything we can to support them. We'll be back um, to talk with, more with Beverly, and we're going to switch topics when we come back. But once again, thank you, SAMHSA, for doing something to help our uh, citizen soldiers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. Um, our guest today is Beverly Watts-Davis, who is the Senior Advisor on Substance Abuse to the Office of the Administrator at SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And um, the great thing about talking to Beverly is that SAMHSA does so much that we could probably talk for the next three weeks about all the different things that SAMHSA does. And we had focused on our first two segments on the prevention, treatment, and outreach initiative that SAMHSA is uh, doing with the National Guard. And for more information on that, you can go to the National Guard website or the SAMHSA website. And we'd like to um, kind of switch gears here and talk a little bit about uh, another very important topic when it comes to recovery, and that's HIV and HIV prevention. Um, And so, Beverly, could you kind of give us a a quick um, update on the status of HIV and AIDS in the recovery community and in the states? One of the most important things that we should know is that we do have, you know, HIV AIDS is, is truly an epidemic that is, that is dramatically growing. I mean, the good news, there is some very good news, and that is that we've 
reduced pediatric age dramatically, um, and we have reduced the um, HIV AIDS virus from sp the, the HIV virus from spreading to full-blown AIDS among injecting drug users. In fact, we've actually reduced the amount, the rate, and number of IV drug users actually become HIV infected. And so there is some real good news. And most people don't realize that SAMHSA, we have about $111 million that we actually give out for HIV um, AIDS prevention. And what's really important with HIV AIDS is it really brings us full circle to what we really have to be in the business of. When we talk about recovery, we're really talking about overall comprehensive care for people who um, are making changes in their life and who have made significant and substantial changes in their life. The HIV, uh, when we talk about recovery, what I do, why this is so important, is because when people come into our treatment centers, whether it be treatment, substance abuse treatment, or mental health, it's important for us, while we have them there, for us to make sure of what their HIV status is. I mean, we do know, if you don't know your status, you can't do anything about it. And what we do know is that the largest sect of people who have contracted um, the HIV virus did so when they were high or drunk. I mean, we, we, we know that statistically. And so we've recognized, too, that we, we have to be about the, the stopping the transmission. Because, again, this is, there is an inevitable end. If people are not treated for, for, for HIV, it goes to full-blown AIDS. There is, a, there is a foregone conclusion of what will happen. And so, again, what we, what we have done here at SAMHSA is really begun to do some really innovative things. And this is one thing that I really have to give um, Dr. Wesley Clark and the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, Dr. Bob Lubrin, and Dr. Kenneth Hoffman, who have really come up with um, a whole program that focuses in on hepatitis C testing to make sure that in opioid methadone clinics we are doing hep C testing as well as we're vaccinating people uh, with the Twinrix vaccination for hepatitis A and B. And I think that just leads us to such good that's just such good public health. It's responsible public health you know, to be able to, to do those kinds of things. We've vaccinated over 7,000 folks and counting, and this is a vaccination program that we're going to increase rapidly. When we first started our, our rapid, uh, when we started focusing in on, we began, we were focused on HIV AIDS since 1999, but we really began to start recognizing that we had to get with the times. And back in 2003, I was actually given the charge of, of trying a new technology, and that's rapid testing. And this is something that I want to share with everyone out there because a lot of people don't know that we actually have a, a, a method of testing for HIV AIDS called rapid testing, and it's a saliva-based test. So no longer do you have to go to a clinic, get a test, then come back two weeks later, hopefully, and find out your results. With this rapid testing, this saliva-based test, you can go in and get your test and, within, with, and with one swab of your saliva, with a Q-tip and a swab of your saliva out of your mouth, within 20 minutes, we can tell you your status. And as Dr. Clark said, you know, we, you know we'll, take, we'll take your saliva and sit down and have a cup of coffee and a, and, and a cookie, and within 20 minutes we can tell you what your status is. And by knowing your status, you can begin to to respond accordingly, whether it's to change your behavior, whether it's to let your partners know, and if you don't have it, to make sure that you don't get it. Could you explain to our listeners the, the connection between um, hepatitis and uh, HIV? 
well, and why it's important to be tested for hepatitis and treated? Oh my goodness, yes. I, thank you for for saying that because one of the key things that that people that most people do not realize is that we recognize that that with hepatitis, it is in our in the United States, liver disease from from viral hepatitis C infection is a leading cause of death for inpatients with HIV infection and chronic liver disease and the tenth leading cause of death in the United States from viral hepatitis. Substance abuse treatment and HIV care are most effective when they're done in combination. Because of that, when we look at liver disease, costs so much, and that, again, that comes from just what happens to our body with illegal drug use. We must and we have to, again, focus on finding out what people have. So many people... To the particular those coming out of prison, don't know that they um, have viral hepatitis C, and it's so important just overall to safety concern within our community. But because of the association, the prevalence of IV drug use, what I make sure of is is that all of these things are going to impact the health of that liver. And in fact, we do know that when we when we test when we test co-infected. Individuals who, for instance, those who may be receiving a methadone treatment and those who um, have hepatitis C, we recognize that with the vaccination, we're actually able to help them achieve a much more healthier life. Now, hepatitis C, we don't have a cure for hepatitis C, but what we can do is we, we can provide drugs and, and, and other medicines that will actually improve their quality of life. And most people, as we said, in particular, we have one population, and that is the reentry population coming from prison. We are so emphasizing this because many, many, over 70% of people in our country went to prison for drug-related crime, drug-related, okay? And I say that, and, and for the fact that they didn't get care, they weren't tested going into prison, when they're coming out for the fact that we're not testing them now leads us leaves us very vulnerable to the spread and the transmission of HIV-AIDS, but also leads, it makes just our communities very, very vulnerable to the spread of hepatitis C. So that's why we are so very work, we're working so very hard to raise awareness and to actually get all of our treatment centers to begin testing for hepatitis C and to also be testing for HIV-AIDS, and then also let's vaccinate people for hepatitis A and B so that we make sure that if, in fact, they do have hepatitis C, they don't get worse and we don't lose them. Right. I know a number of years ago there was uh, the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center did some research here regarding um, the rate of uh, HIV among people with severe and persistent mental illness. And um, what they found was really interesting because a lot of the folks had been, um, you know, had come back into the community after spending a lot of time in the, in the state hospital. So they were sharing a lot of the same sex partners. Yep. So what they found is that while there was a very low rate of HIV, there was a very high rate of hepatitis. And, and, see, that, and, and, and there again, as we said, in, in, in our both treatment, substance abuse treatment and mental health centers, yep. it's, just, it's just good public health. And especially when we have our clients, because we recognize that when we have people who who come to treatment, when they walk through that door, we have to be, we have to, we have to, it's almost, it's got to be treatment on demand. 
I mean, it's just when they walk in the door, we have to do everything we can to treat them at that moment or at minimum get them back the next day. Because in losing them, and you, you mentioned that, when they walk out that door again, we may not see them for another three or four months. Where can people get the rapid HIV testing? Wonderfully, we are, because, because this has spread throughout the United States. Many, most, most health clinics, most public health clinics in the cities are doing that. You have many, many of the um, community-based organizations that provide uh, HIV AIDS services all now have the rapid testing, and this upcoming year, SAMHSA will be buying even more rapid testing because this, not only are we doing this with our substance abuse treatment and mental health centers, I will tell you, we have we actually got 416,000 rapid tests, and we we bought them and then we gave them out to gave them out for free, just gave them to our centers. So many of our centers have now Im- implemented rapid testing programs, and many of those states that have a high rate of HIV/AIDS, uh, more than 10 per 100,000, are using their part of their block grant funds. There's a five percent set aside in those states for those states to use some money to help with HIV AIDS, and many of them are using those, those block grant funds to buy rapid test kits. But, many, but mo- many rapid test kits are at the local public health, at your local public health department and at your free clinics. And, that, and that's really great because we, we, we need that. And many AIDS providers, HIV AIDS service providers, have rapid tests. Because, again, if we don't have to use a needle to draw blood, because like I said, I, I'm one and I'm, you know, I'm in the public health service. I'm afraid of needles. I don't want to have to take a needle, but if you can tell me I can take a, you know, you can swab my saliva, I'm there. I'll get the test. Right, right. And it's, it's much easier from a management point of view, too. You don't have to then um, get rid of a contaminated syringe and, and needle as well. We've got another great program that's, that's actually being done with our minority education institutions. We had an outbreak along just a couple years ago, literally two years ago. You know, we began to see such an, an incredibly high rate among African-American women. And... Um, under the brilliant leadership of Claudia Richards in the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, her and Peggy Quigg really sat down and came up with a great initiative that's really that's got which I love again. It's 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 a peer education program, but it's students educating other students. And I will tell you, these these students have done an amazing job in terms of educating their fellow students because we've seen such an outbreak amongst 18 to 25 year olds. And these young students, um, I mean, they they they've gotten over 64,000 people to be coming to their workshops, and 258 of these students became peer educators. And really importantly. In this very, very short period of time, they got 4,231 students to actually go get tested and get referral and counseling and help. And this was so important because we're seeing the epidemic, particularly among young African-American women, just um, be be truly spiraling out of control. And so, again, once again, we see a model where you've got peers helping peers. Which is an important part for... um for compliance and for outreach, that it's much easier to go to a peer than a professional. We'll be right back with uh, Beverly Watts-Davis to talk more about SAMHSA's HIV initiatives. Um, We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. Um, we're going to continue our discussion on HIV transmission with um, Beverly Watts Davis, who's the Senior Advisor on Substance Abuse for the Office of the Administrator of SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And um, Beverly, one of the things we've been talking about is um, the transmission of HIV through IV drug um, use. But um, as, as we both know, there are other ways for it to be transmitted. Um, and I think that for a long time we got complacent in the um, substance abuse world because it seemed like um, HIV was, was kind of under control, AIDS wasn't increasing, there were new medications out, and um, maybe we ought to talk a little bit more about some of the realities of, of transmission today. You said earlier that the highest rate of HIV right now is among young African-American women, and um, that's the age of my daughter, and I'm kind of thinking like, wow, you know, um, that's scary. So um, can you talk a little bit to our listeners about why that, that group is at such high risk. You know, and again, this is this this is a conversation that we that we 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 just have to have we have to have honest conversation from sister to sister, mother to daughter, niece, nieces and aunts. We just have to begin to have this conversation about us. And you know, this is just kind of the sister girl talk now. There is there is such a high rate, and it is escalating. And there's there there obviously are some theories. And until you actually begin to 
to do surveys, but I will just share with you what some of the noted people in our field and highly respected in the field of HIV AIDS, um, and particularly that who are African American women and study that group. One of the things that we talk about um, in terms of uh, Deborah Fraser Howell, she said, you know, there is such a, a large number of African American men, particularly young men, who have gone to prison, who now are out. And the fact that you have young women who are not suspecting, um, have no reason, that, you know, they're seeing this as a young man, you know, he doesn't really tell them where, that he's been in prison, that, they, that, they are, that they're feeling that to not protect themselves, to not have protected sex, is somehow not going to, is, is not going to play well, and this guy's not going to want to be with them. And I just have to say, you know, to these young ladies and young ladies, you know, you, 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 we want you to spread the word, but not the virus. And we want, we want to make sure that young women feel comfortable enough in themselves to say, you know, if we can't have, if we're going to have sex and it's not protected, then we're not having it. And we just have to begin to do that. Because, again, if A equal B and B equal C, then A equal C. The, the huge numbers of African-American men coming out of jails, where are they going back to? They're going back to African-American communities. And, and in most cases, they're going to be with other young um, African-American women. And for them, for these young ladies to, again, have unprotected sex is just not, it's just unwise. We hear so many stories of, so many, um, of where women, you know, they, they were, they got it from their husbands or their boyfriends who they thought uh, were, was not obviously having sex with anyone else. But again, it's just, Part of that is, and that is part of the stigma. We don't find out about it um, until, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're, we're showing symptoms of HIV-AIDS. And, again, with so many women, there's a, a, a video out. It's called Out of Control, AIDS in Black America. And it does a really good job of interviewing women and just having this conversation. You know, some, one of the institutions that's such a strong factor in the African-American community uh, in black America is that of the faith institutions and the fact that they have been very silent on this. And we now have many uh, faith organizations that are stepping up to the plate and saying, we've got to talk about this because this is an epidemic that is killing our daughters and killing our sons. And I'm really pleased to say that many of the megachurches here at SAMHSA, we actually have a, an initiative where we're funding um, 70, organ 70 faith-based organizations. And, their job in, and what they are doing is raising this issue, you know, in the pulpit, in their churches, talking about this, and and actually because of all this action, we've actually you know seen the trend line going a bit. But again, we we have to continue to talk about this, and that's one of the most important things. We have to talk about this so that we will realize that you know nobody is safe until we're all safe, and this will push for us to not only practice um, responsible and safe sex, but also to be able to you know figure out what we need to do to um, quite frankly hopefully someday get a cure and to also make sure that people, if they are, if they to get them tested early so that we can help them get, get the drugs that will help them live longer and at least truly be able to still live a very productive life. Um, this will be the first year that we actually have uh, a, our cohort of young people who were born with HIV AIDS, they will graduate from high school this year. And in visiting with uh, some of those in the study that was done by the people spoke about this at the National Minority AIDS Conference, you know, many of these, these young people don't, you know, they, they've made it. You know, they, they actually live long enough 
uh, they, to, to be able to reach graduation. And, you know, as I said, you know, they, they've, they're, how they are behaving sexually is very, very important. And they've become great champions for, um, for recognizing that people have to alter their lifestyle. I mean, it's, it's no longer that, you just, that there are just a sexually transmitted diseases. These are sexually transmitted diseases that will kill you. And we have to have those honest conversations um, about our behavior and how we protect ourselves from behavior and how we protect others and why we have to get tested and why we have to encourage everyone to get tested. And I know it's not the most romantic thing, but I'd much rather have less romance uh, and still be around. And live longer. <laughs> live longer. Yeah. Well, you know, you'd mentioned earlier about uh, the planning grants for HIV and AIDS and substance abuse prevention to post-incarcerated persons, and it just seems like a no-brainer that we would just spend whatever money it is for the test for people coming out of prison because it's so preventative. I mean, the cost of treating HIV and AIDS is astronomical, you know. And that's, you know, and again, and this is... This is just one of this is my opinion, and I have to say that because I'm a because I'm a federal employee. But this is my opinion. For us to not be testing people as they step out of prison is just poor public health policy. Oh, it is. It's just poor, because again, you know, we talk. I, I was someone said to me, Beverly, that's that, talk about real weapons of mass destruction. You're going to over the last three years, we have released 1.6 million prisoners. And we tested none of them. Right. I mean, how 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 ridiculous is that? Right. And and what people don't realize is you're you're having sex with whoever that person had sex with. So it's not like you're just having sex with one person. You know, it's that person's carrying other viruses or that were transmitted to them from previous partners. So. And you know, it's just amazing that as we. You know, when we look at these statistics, even though blacks, including African Americans, count for about 13% of the United States population, they count for, for about half of all people who get HIV-AIDS. And it is now, for African Americans and other blacks, it is HIV-AIDS is the leading cause of death. The leading cause of death. And we also know, kind of tying in the methamphetamine um, epidemic, you know, you we have people on meth who are um, also contracting HIV at a high rate. As well. So again, you know, this is this is 100% preventable. It is 100% preventable, and that's what's just amazing. You know, it's we just have to be smarter and and love ourselves enough to do this for ourselves and do this for our partners and people. You know, your your husbands, your wives, and et cetera. And just you know, to, this is as, as I said, this is not this is not a hard one. I mean, and to get tested is not hard, and, and to make sure that you're having protective sex is not hard. Um, and what's, what's really important is that safe sex is good sex and that we all have a responsibility to protect ourselves as well as our partners. And um, I just want to thank Beverly Watts-Davis for coming today and sharing with us on both the National Guard Initiative and um, the HIV Minority AIDS Initiative. Um, these are issues that are really important to everyone's recovery and to America in general. And just thank you, Beverly, for everything you're doing and the folks at SAMHSA. Um, you're doing great work, and we're all better for, for it. So thank you.
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.